Today on the podcast, we're talking about collaboration. More specifically, this idea of collective intelligence. My guest is author, advisor, and teacher Simon Dowling. And he told me that collective intelligence isn't just about collaborating as a team, that it's about understanding the kinds of problems that can only be solved by having this group of people in the room. So I give him a call to talk all about how we can build that kind of team. Joining me on the phone is Simon Dowling. Simon is an author, speaker, teacher, and advisor, helping create teams that, in his words, really hum. He believes that organizations can achieve some pretty amazing things if they let their people operate to their fullest potential. In fact, the most important thing a leader can do, in his words, is create an environment for their people to really fly. His interest in team dynamics comes from a period of life when he was part of two very different teams. By day, a commercial lawyer in a big city law firm, and by night, a cast member in an improvised comedy show across Melbourne. He's an expert in helping leaders and companies to create supercharged teams, and it's a privilege to have him on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Shane Hatton. It's uh, it's really cool to be here, actually. I don't say this lightly. I actually think you are a clever person. I think everyone, to some extent, has a cleverness, and I like sharing that, but Every conversation I have with you, I feel like is rich. And I, I genuinely say it in, in an authentic way. You, you are a clever person. And so I'm looking forward to our, our conversation together. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say about that. Because other than <laughs> other than that moment of like, and I imagine many of your guests have probably reflected on this, being invited onto a podcast called Phone Calls with Clever People. And then you go, and then should this episode be titled, And Me? <laughs> So that's very nice of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) And friends and co. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, um, I want to jump in with some fast fact. It gives people a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So uh, what was your, where were you born? What was your first Mm -hmm. job? And then what do you do now? Where was I born? Uh, I was born in Melbourne where I live now at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital. Uh, What was my first job? First proper job was working Behind the watch department at a jewellery store, Bevel's Jewellers, which I think still exists, Bevel's it Jewellers. Still, it does exist, yeah. Not the one I worked in. The one I worked in was uh, on Burke Street Mall, which was always really cool because when you were not actually serving a customer, you could stand near the entrance and listen to some of the awesome buskers on Burke Street Mall and check out some of the music that they were playing. That's when you weren't chasing away people who were actually trying to steal jewellery from the front window display, which is right. really interesting. You said first proper job. I'm always curious because everyone always has like their first job, but then their first kind of real job. Like what was your job before the proper job? Oh, the one that sprung to mind, there's actually two that spring to mind. One was just occasionally working in my dad's office when, because he ran his own business and still does. So I used to walk, work occasionally in that, but I'm having a moment going, did I get paid for that? I'm not sure. (laughs) There probably was some sort of compensation. And then there was another one which was delivering leaflets. I remember answering an ad to um, deliver, I don't know, 500 million leaflets to <laughs> neighbouring streets, which I did. I thought, how cool, I can earn money and get exercise <laughs> at the same time. Earn money is a bit of a loose uh, loose use of that definition. 
And and that would have been even if I had got paid, which I never did. The the money never came through. So I just got exercise and pissed off a whole lot of the neighbourhood in the process. But you've come a long way since then. You've come a long way since delivering oh, pamphlets you. and not getting paid. So so tell us about what you do now. <laughs> what do I do now? So now I sort of do a blend of things, but they're all about helping teams and organisations to just be more collaborative, get more effective around collaboration, connecting the dots, making great stuff happen collaboratively. So whether that's, you know, because then my my first proper, proper job, I guess, was working as a commercial lawyer and I did that for many years. And I used to be at the front line of negotiating and trying to resolve disputes and the like, but it was always with a very adversarial tone to it, like mm. you versus me. That never sat well with me. And I went through this journey of going, this is not the way I like doing things. It doesn't sit well with my own values. And I kind of could wash that up against my own experience as a performer. So I was working also as a performer, you know, a bit of hobby, a bit of, you know, weekend paid work as well, where I was in improvised theatre. And that that was all about working in ensemble groups where you would collaborate and make stuff happen, co-create was what it was all about. And that sat really well with me. I know you're tempted to want to go beyond there, but I I am curious to hear more about that just for like, like a little minute. Like if you ever get a chance yeah. to brag about this experience that you've had, this is a moment to, to brag on some of the things that you got to do <laughs> in that space, right? <laughs> I, I, um, I don't know about brag, but what do you what do you want to hear about? You just want me to just well, I want to hear what you did in in, in improv because this was a space that you're in. This which is which is deeply fascinating to me. And if the rumors that I've heard about you are true, uh, which they may or may not be, there was there was actually opportunity that you had with improv, right? Well, look, there was. So it was such a fun kind of part of life. So for me, when I was at uni, I got involved in. I'd always enjoyed performing, so I did you know theatre at school and then carried that across into uni and I actually was studying my major at uni in the arts degree was performing arts. So I got involved because I was so busy once I started work as a lawyer, I got involved doing improv because it meant you didn't have to do hours and hours and hours of rehearsal. Uh, You could just rock up and you didn't have to do three straight weeks of shows. You could just rock up on a Sunday night, which was for some reason Sunday nights, the classic improv evening. You could rock up on a Sunday night and be part of a show. So I did that for years and that meant, you know, there were more famous kind of formats like theatre sports, which, you know, is one that a lot of people know of. And we used to do some fabulous shows at, you know, the National Theatre in St Kilda in Melbourne, which is a lovely big theatre. We did some stuff at the uh, the Universal Theatre. It's now gone. It's now apartments, sadly, in Fitzroy. Mm. You know, lots of fun and got involved in the comedy festival here in Melbourne. So I was doing shows regularly every year. It was just one of those things that, allowed you to do perform with a whole range of different people to do different formats. But for me also, it was a real challenge. It was a stretch. And that's partly what I enjoyed about it was you would be performing in these shows, often with people who had made their career performing in stand-up comedy and the like. Mm. And at times you'd be on stage with people like that just thinking, who the hell am I to be on this stage? But (laughs) the thing about improv is it didn't actually depend on you being just a naturally uh, hilarious person. It just meant that you had to study these skills of performing with an ensemble and creating scenes from scratch and making great stories up. And that was a lot of fun. 
So, yeah, mm. I used to perform heaps of Sunday nights and the comedy festivals were great. But then, you know, I had a great opportunity open up when one day I was sitting at my office desk in my previous role before I started my own business and I had this call from this lady saying, I don't know if you've heard of Working Dog, but uh, we wondered if you'd be interested to come in and have a chat about a show that we're about to do. And, um, of course, you know, I, like most people, had heard of Working Dog because they were famous for shows like The Panel and you know movies like The Castle and all, all the rest of it. So before I know it, I was having this chat with the Working Dog crew about this show, Thank God You're Here, which then was part of uh, the four seasons that it ran, which was just a huge amount of fun. That was the one I was alluding, alluding to. I was hoping you were going to brag on that for a moment because I'd only heard, I haven't heard it from your mouth. And so I was either going to be deeply embarrassed by not <laughs> by bringing you <laughs> something that was unrelated and would have picked something else that you told me about just then. Um, but it was that one. And I, I love it because it was a, se- a series that I loved personally. And I actually use in my workshops now. We do a bit of that kind of improv thank God you hear kind of a moment because uh, I just think it, it's it's so fun in getting people to kind of obviously a lot around communication and around collaboration and and this one specifically we use around messaging which is this idea of there's a big difference between saying something and then having something to say and getting really clear on your intention and your message and your audience so we often have a bit of a fun with uh, a fun game with that so when I heard about that I was so I was so excited to, to kind of hear that story and see how you played a part in that. But I'm looking at everything you talk about and and you've got this kind of career in law, you've got this career in kind of improv and theatre and and obviously now what you're doing is in this collaboration space um, and, and a lot more than obviously mm. collaboration is probably a, a big word um, that can cover a lot of things, but yours is you know within that space. You can see yeah. everything kind of weaving together in, into what you're doing now. Yeah, oh, totally, 100%. I mean, I, I explicitly use some of the skills and the principles I learned as an improviser and still go back to myself because they're just so useful. I explicitly teach them to people and use them as guiding principles for how teams should work in a corporate setting because I think all of those principles apply. And now, you know, there's this mix of, I use the word play a lot in the context of the work I do because what I think one of the things you've got to invite people to do is to just step into sometimes uncharted waters with each other. I feel like Mm. I'm mixing metaphors there, but they step into (laughs) this space and there's no rules, there's no principles, there's no boss telling us what to do. It's not a chaired conversation. It's actually sometimes just messy and it's unscripted. And so it's this invitation to step in and just play with each other. And I think that's what increasingly organisations are trying to set up these spaces where people can actually step into create ideas, generate new perspectives, challenge the status quo, but not wait to be told to do it. And I think that's that's the principle of co-creation that improvisers have been working on for ages. And I reckon, yeah, it's exactly the work that I do now. One of the things that you said, and just listening to kind of what you touched on there, was that you said, this is kind of how teams should work. And we often have these ideas of how like great teams, teams that are really thriving should work, but more often than not, it's not the picture of what we want for that team. So we go, teams should be this great co-creative space, this collaborative environment. There should be really, you know, it should be, and we use the word should, but often at times it falls kind of shy of that, of our expectations of what it could be. What do you, what do you notice? What do you see working with, I mean, you work with a lot of organizations and teams, like what are some of the big problems you notice as to why they're not where we want them to be? There's, you know, three that come to mind as probably the most common things that you'd see, and they're probably all teams can relate to it in different ways. One of which is I'm just too busy. Like I've got my job to do. So 
if the nature of my role or the nature of the way our team is set up means I'm just stacked with so much to do and that's how success is measured and what we value is me just churning through and delivering that stuff, well, guess what? I don't have time to be distracted and interrupted by you. So I'll try and minimise those distractions as much as possible. That's one. I think another one, another problem, and almost everyone would have to resonate with this one, is because we kind of get intuitively, and you hear a lot of organisations and leaders talk about the importance of collaboration. There's plenty of places you'll walk into their offices and there'll be posters up on the walls saying collaboration is one of our core values. (laughs) Well, The problem with that is we kind of then get the interpretation of what that is supposed to mean wrong and the outcome is I spend all of my days in meetings that I didn't need to be at and we perhaps didn't even need to have a meeting or I spend all the rest of my time actually wading through emails that I've been copied into that I really wish I hadn't been copied into or being told that I've got to participate in some kind of online communication channel where I can't actually work out which bits of it I really need to be in. Mm. And because I'm scared of being the one in the room who's labelled as non-collaborative, I just happily and willing, well, not happily, but willingly, perhaps begrudgingly participate in the whole lot. So in fact, the irony of this is that one of the things that often gets in the way of collaboration is that we are drowned in it. We're Mm. over collaborating because we haven't defined it clearly enough. And that's, that's a huge one. And it would feed back into that first one, right? Like the, the feeling of I've got no time because all my, you know, we want to collaborate more. And by what we think is collaborating, we over collaborate, which gives us less time to feel like we can do it. So it's this to kind of To be in the right space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, I think there's a huge thing there around how do we actually distinguish between, you know, what on the one hand I would say is cooperation. Oh, wow. Can you hear that? There's a very loud, <laughs> someone's starting a Harley Davidson or something out there. I've never heard that before. People can't see this on video, but Simon right now is out at a Formula One racetrack and there's obviously people doing. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's one of the things I do, right, is I, I teach pit crews how to, pit stop crews how to, no, not really. Uh, you should. <laughs> it's the ultimate collaboration. What were we talking about? Yeah, that's right. We were saying that I think there's this distinction to be made between just being cooperative, which is I'm here to be helpful. If you ask me for something, I'll respond politely. I'll engage in a conversation. If you need help, I'll provide it. I'll I'll ask for help when I need it and I'll engage with people respectfully. That's different from the true collaborative moments, the moments of collaboration, which have to be much more choiceful, which have to be much more intentional. And I think that's that's a distinction that has to be drawn. Otherwise, we just, yeah, we get drowned in the over-collaboration, which is a very real thing. It's funny hearing the the kind of concept of over, over-collaboration because more often than not, you would hear, like, it, when you say it out loud, you go, oh, my gosh, yes, that's that's over-collaboration. You would never use that language for it. You go, we, we think we need more collaboration, but the reason why we're not is probably because we've, we're feeling drowned and overwhelmed by what we think is this idea of collaboration. I use the metaphor of um, ice cream when I talk about collaboration because I, I, I sort of say, like, I'm a huge fan of ice cream and I <laughs> feel like a huge huge majority of audiences are. And when you talk about ice cream, it's like if I go into an ice cream shop, I know that I love ice cream, but I also know that I'm not having all the ice cream in the shop. Mm. Like I just can't. Uh, Even if I wanted to, it just doesn't seem realistic. So I know from the beginning that I have to be choosy and the system actually has choosiness built into it. Most ice cream shops will allow you to taste flavours because they know you have to be selective. So it's built into the system. I mean, Mm. COVID obviously 
had a negative impact on our ability to a walk into ice cream shops and then do the tastings. But you kind of get that distinction, and so I I reckon that's the kind of mindset a lot of teams and organisations need to work on is how do we actually get more selective and get choosy about where we where we invest our collaborative efforts, and it's not in everything that I get invited to. Uh, and it's not in every decision that's there to be made. And the value in this, I remember having a conversation with you uh, maybe a couple of months ago now, and you described it as this ability to build teams that, I think your word was hum. Like it was that, yeah. was that, was that word you used? Yeah, like, I use that a like lot. This ability to kind of the value in this is when we get this right, we've got teams that hum. Like what do you mean when you say that? Well, I, I guess at the high, at, at the sort of the broadest level, a team that hums for me is one that is not only able to achieve great things because achievement is one thing, but the experience of being in the team is both satisfying personally, so it's an emotionally positive experience, like I like being in this team, but it also has, you know, the hum is actually this, uh, built up effect of all these wonderful moments of where we integrate and the friction moments and the moments of where we kind of have to kind of get into alignment with each other, that creates this resonance, this sound that just says, you know what, all these bits are working. So as a simple example of which, if you're someone in my team and you have this absolute strength, this superpower around your ability to, you know, to analyse data and to interpret data or information that we get in through the door, and I'm someone who's at the front line and there's a lot of data that's really coming across my desk all the time, whether it's customer feedback, information about customers preferences, whatever it might be. I would say a team that hums is one that where you and I don't just get on. We actually understand that you have a superpower and it fits perfectly with both a need and an experience of my role. And we find a way to make that work. We sort of find the linkage points that then produces the magic. That's where the results flow from. So we're constantly looking for each other and saying, what are you really good at? And improvisers do that really well, right? Like improvisers before a show will start will perhaps spend some time going to each other. So what are you, if I haven't worked with you before, right? You and I are in the wings and I'll say, so what do you love doing, Shane? What, 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 what's the sort of stuff you love doing on stage? Or maybe if we have worked together, I'll say, what do you feel like doing today? Shane might say, I feel like doing a a different kind of character. I want to do a character that's more, you know, low-key rather than than energetic. Or I feel like singing. (laughs) Or or I feel like doing accents or whatever it is. And now what I will do is when we're out on that stage, I will find a way to bring that in. And I love that. That's just such a great example of what I I mean by the hum. Mm, And bringing out the best in others. Because I think about, like when I think about collaboration, I think and I I reflect on my experiences just in life, most of my experiences have been about rewarding and celebrating individual achievement, right? It's about you discover yeah. what you're good at and you get really good at that. And so you you either top of your class or you're best at sport and then you get ducks of the school because you are academically a standout. Then you get to university and you get graded individually. And then all of a sudden we're in the workplace and we're like, go work together. <laughs> it's yep. like, well, hang on a minute. Yep. Everything about me is is recognized and rewarded and celebrated as individual strengths. And now yep. all of a sudden we expect people to just know how to play well together like do you see that yeah the classic example of that might be say you look at a sales team and that sales team has a target of a hundred thousand dollars this month and so what do we do if we've got 10 people in the sales team we go well Shane your target's 10 mine's 10 Anne's 10 
Kirsty's 10 and so on. And what mm. we say is, well, so our success, and we sort of mistake this for collaboration, our success is that if everyone makes their 10, we'll have succeeded. But actually what that really is valuing is just everybody being able to do their bit and they'll probably be rewarded on that. Whereas a sales team that kind of evolves beyond that says, but we also have to reward people for helping each other Mm. achieve their results. And now we don't value there being a hero salesperson in our team. What we actually value is there being someone who is just awesome at helping, at assisting we're looking for ways that other people in the team can solve their problem. Just as a sporting team right, might say, we're not just going to track people for how many goals they scored in this team sport, but we're actually going to look for how many times they assisted other people on the ground. Because the moment you start doing that, you start to, I guess, really highlight what it is that you value most as a team and that you have to make that shift as a baseline. And that's not just in terms of what you reward, but what, you, as you say, what you celebrate, Shane, what mm-hmm. you, you know, what you talk about, what you focus on in team meetings, all of that is absolutely critical. Otherwise, people will just revert back to, well, I've got to make sure I'm safe first and my safety comes from achieving my baseline requirements, my expectations. One of the things that I often talk to people who are emerging into leadership, and I, I say that there's kind of two big shifts that a person needs to make. The first is to move from that shift of a manager to a leader, which is hard because you go from being able to be held accountable kind of to things to now being responsible for people. And that's a big shift for people to get. The second one is that shift from individual to collective, which is like, what's my part in this to now what's our kind of contribution together. And you have this great concept or this thought around collective genius, which is part of this, right? It's like, help help us understand a little bit, like, what does collective genius look like? I reckon this term collective genius, which comes from, so there's this wonderful quote that I I use a lot from Walter Riston, who was a longtime CEO of Citigroup. And the quote goes, the person who figures out how to harness the collective genius of his or her organisation is going to blow the competition away. And the thing I love about that quote is that, A, it introduces this term, which just is such a cool term to use, collective mm. genius, but it, it gets you thinking, like, what, what is he really talking about when he states that problem? So collective genius, and this goes to what you were just saying, is more than just we're here to help one another, which is, you know, there is a level beyond individualism, which is where... Okay, when I take a meeting as an example, I come into a meeting with you and a bunch of other people and I think, you know what, I'm not just here because the boss told me I had to be. I'm not just here because this meeting's in the schedule but I can't wait wait to get back to my desk. I actually enjoy this meeting because this meeting, you know, I get to hear about others' challenges. I get to learn stuff. I can help if people want to help. That's cool, right? That quality though, that's what I describe as a cohesive team where there's cohesion amongst us, but we haven't yet got to collective genius. That's We've got to go up another level yet. Mm-hmm. And collective genius is, as an example, if we said when we have these meetings, we're not here to talk about what each of us is doing individually and to see how we can help with one another on that. We're actually here to talk about what's the stuff that this group of people can only do by working together. Mm-hmm. There are some actual initiatives, problems to solve, projects that we can embark on, But if all of us does not contribute fully to it, it actually won't happen. And not just contribute, but contribute in a joint way. There has to be this, it's a collaborative spirit now. It's a collaborative endeavour. So what's that, for example? Mm. Uh, And for example, it might be one of the things we want to do is reposition our 
brand in the market and we want to make sure that there's a shift from being seen as the uh, the technical experts in what we do to people who are actually able to innovate and create whole new solutions around X. But if we're going to do that, what that requires is each and every one of us to have completely different conversations, not just with our customers, but actually with each other. We're going to have to kind of discover what the opportunities are within our own four walls. And that's going to have to be over and above the BAU, the sort of the business as usual stuff that each of us is doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're, we're, we're looking at here. What that actually takes is for us to frame up what's the problem here that we're trying to solve or the opportunity we're trying to tap. And then what is it that makes that a collaborative endeavor as opposed to just an individual one? Mm. I, I love that question to reflect on, which is what could we solve here collectively that we wouldn't have been able to solve if this group wasn't in this space working towards solving this problem? If people who are listening to this reflected back to the last meeting that they had, like, and you yeah. look at the kind of conversations or the outcomes that came of that meeting, like the, that's a good question to reflect on. Could we have achieved those outcomes without that group of people together in the room there? Yeah, because often, and this is the sad part, the answer is actually, yeah, we could have. Mm. You know, we, could have we could have achieved it outside this room. Um, for a start, maybe we never needed a meeting in the first place. Um, yeah. But far too often topics that are brought up actually don't require everyone sitting at the table. So I think that that's going to lead you to one of two things. You're either going to say, well, actually, now that we've framed up what the opportunity is here, do we need everyone who's in the room? Or perhaps even more so, who are we missing from this conversation? Because there's a great opportunity here for us to kind of create something. So I think, you know, just leaning into that as a starting point is is so important. I was doing a having a conversation with um, Kendra uh, Banks recently, who is the managing director at Seek, and she she had a really good thought around this because their team is what I would say is really collaborative, based on my experience of working with them. And she has this belief in this uh, in this philosophy that if if you're in the room, you're there for a reason. And I and I loved that kind of um, philosophy for her. So she's constantly trying to bring in representatives and voices from across the business. Because she she said she recognizes that without those voices, you don't get those perspectives. And without those perspectives, you can't solve some of the biggest problems that they've got. And so mm. I, I love that idea of like recognizing that every person in the room has a contribution to make and something, some value that they can add to this. My kind of space in this, like a thought here is like, what's the role of the leader in this? And what's the role of the team in this? Like, what's the dynamic between those? But I mean, what are some of your thoughts just on on, on that? Yeah. It's a good one because part of me wants to say, well, you know, it's everyone's shared role. But there's no question, practically speaking, that the leader of a team has to set the tone. Um, and I think the first way is, and the most important, is to show whether they truly do value the collaborative endeavours or not, like what we achieve together. Will that be celebrated? Will that be rewarded? Will I be penalised for, you know, spending time on a collaborative effort when I could have gone off and achieved an individual thing alone. And I guess the first way to reflect that is do the KPIs actually need changing, the, the, the success measures, the, the way in which each of us is rewarded. So I think the first piece is does the leader care mm. and, and also make it safe? Like, you know, if, I, if we all collaborate and spend time trying to work together on a problem, if I've got a leader who then goes off and claims success on their own behalf, or do they claim it on behalf of the team? So I think the leader's job is definitely to create the tone and to create the safety in that respect. And the safety is important because 
if we're being asked to co-create in a sp- around something where there are no rules, there is no precedent, there's no black and white here, there's no right or wrong, then probably the most important thing a leader is going to be able to do is to create the conditions where it is okay for people to try stuff out mm-hmm. without necessarily knowing whether it's the right answer, to have a crack, to get in there and just be experimenting and using this language of experimentation. And then when things don't go well, what do you, how do you respond to that? Do you say, oh, well, yeah, stick to your day job? Or do you say, well, what did we learn from that as a group? Because there is no rule. So I think that's a huge part of this. And there's one other thing that actually comes to mind on that, and that is the senior leaders I work with where their focus is on how do I get my team to take more ownership? How do I get my team to spend more time reaching out to other parts of the business to make stuff happen? One of the things I find you always have to work on as a new habit is don't allow people to escalate stuff to you too quickly Mm. because if you and I are from different parts of the business or different teams or different functional expertise and we both bring a starter conversation or bring an idea or you bring one to me and I'm, I'm looking at it through my traditional measures of success and you're looking at it through yours and they don't seem to match up, then the first thing we might, might both go is, well, you're not my boss, I'm not your boss. So we don't know how to resolve this, so let's escalate it. Let's take it to the boss. And so that's what we do. And guess what? The opportunity for us to actually in that moment of wonderful friction and tension, which actually could have been the moment that forced us to create something together, we miss that moment because we take what appears to be the easy way out, the convenient way out, and we just escalate it upwards. That's That's got to stop. I absolutely agree. And the immediate thing that goes through my mind is that it's so much easier to escalate it and get somebody else to have input in it as opposed to like if you feel like you're not getting anywhere at this level, that's the easy go-to. So how do, like, how do you actually do that? How do you make sure you you stay in the moment where you can solve a problem collaboratively as opposed to trying to just escalate it. Well, and that probably now starts to come to the other part of your question, the first question, which was what's the team's responsibility in this? Mm. So I think there's a skills piece. Like you could tell you could tell a team that, step into the mess, look for opportunities to create. There are no rules, so just go for it. But let's remember a lot of people just haven't necessarily learnt those skills. Like, how do I do that? Because in that space, you and I are going to need the ability to solve problems together, joint problem solving. What does that look like? Like, I, I, you know, at its most basic, it looks like me saying, so forget about what you want as an outcome here and I'll have to forget what I want as an outcome. And instead, let's talk about what actually matters to us. What's important here? What's What's behind that for you? So if you're saying you want to make a change to this particular widget here and this product here or you want to tweak this piece of comms rather than me, rather than me saying, well, that's not how I would have worded it. <laughs> so here's my proposed wording. What do you think? And then you go, well, that's not, not what I would have proposed either and mine's in front of you. So now let's take it to the boss. Instead, we have to say, well, hang on, what are we both trying to achieve here? What's important to you? What's important to me? And once we understand each other on that, now let's open up the conversation for, so what are some ways we could actually achieve both there? Let's get creative. That takes patience. It takes a bit of skill in terms of negotiation and listening. And it probably takes a bit of confidence too, which is it's okay if the outcome here is neither your nor mine, but a jointly created one. So one of us is going to have to be, in fact, we're both going to have to be okay with letting go a little bit for this to work. And I think that's, again, that's both a mindset and a skill set thing 
which is, again, where the leader's role is going to be so critical in kind of setting that tone. There's definitely this element of, I mean, it's easier to be able to have that kind of a collaborative, co-creative process when you know that the outcome of that, which is when it becomes a good outcome, is not going to be that person celebrated and your idea shut down when it's actually yeah. the the outcome is celebrated as a co-creative experience as opposed to, which comes back to the leader again, right? So true. So true. You know, there's a little voice in my head at this point that also says, yeah, but but sometimes maybe the co-creation is going to be the thing that maybe you get more recognition for. And if this became the norm, maybe that's okay because next time it might be me, right? Mm -hmm. So there's something else in this which, again, this is almost a cultural shift that has to happen because I I totally get that tension you've named, which is there's got to be a mindset of abundance that comes into this. Mm. which is very different from a mindset of scarcity, which is, you know what? If I step into these conversations with a spirit of generosity and a, and a mindset that says it's not about your way or my way, there's probably a better way, then I also have to believe that if we do enough of that, that the over the overarching result, the outcome in the long run here will be better for both you and me. And if I can kind of coach myself into that way of thinking, then it's going to be a less less about how did my how did my PL look at the end of this month and more about how to look at the end of the quarter. Or maybe it's less about how to look at the end of the quarter, but how to look at the end of the year, which then is also going to come down to, well, what are we measuring? Is it just revenue or is it something else? So there is definitely a systems and a culture piece in there. But for it to work fully, I think that's that spirit that you really want to you, you want to embrace. Yeah, it reminds me of um, something Seth Godin wrote a little while ago, which is like, if you've got a, like, what's the best thing you can do with an idea? And that's just to give it away. And it's like the scarcity mindsets is like, if I, if I have an idea and I give it away, I've lost it. And he's like, it's the assumption that you're never going to get another idea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just as you said that, it's like, I can, and I've heard that before, but I, you know, (laughs) you, you, you sit there and you go, gosh, how many ideas did I hold on to tightly because I wanted to control where it went Mm. you know but the interesting challenge in this i think sometimes it's the elephant in the corner of the room and all of this is this is all a lot easier to do if you got to choose who you collaborate with like if you got to choose who your collaboration fellows were yeah um but of course in organizations often you have no control over who you are expected to collaborate with who you need to in order to be able to get stuff happening and the magic happening, which is always going to be a barrier. So one of the challenges we face here is how do you how do you create an environment where people who wouldn't normally choose to spend time together and hang out together actually get comfortable enough with one another that they can play together as well? There's a challenge. Yeah, this is the whole... <laughs> Uh, this is the tension that we have to manage is that the, our, our most um, collaborative and uh, what you describe as that collective genius is at its best when we have this uniqueness of each individual bringing what they they bring into that group. But the fact that we're so unique and so different and that diversity of our thought and in the group means that chances are we're not going to see eye to eye on everything. And that's actually mm. one of the greatest strengths of our group. So like if we were to, like, let's imagine that you and I were, we were coaching ourselves into a group or you were coaching someone in a, in a group who maybe recognizes that I'm very different to the people that I work with and 
I want to, I want to have more of this collective genius. I want to have us collaborative and co-creative kind of environments, but I'm struggling because we're so different. Like what are the questions we'd need to be asking ourselves or what would you ask to some of your coaching clients that you work with? Like, how would we get past some of this? Oh, such a good question. I, um, what are the questions we'd ask ourselves? I think the first question I would want a team to be asking, and I'm, I'm in, increasingly holding teams in this space is how can we better understand each other's differences Mm. what is it that makes us different because what we've got a value is difference as opposed to similarity so if in the old if the old paradigm here is let's measure our ability to get on as a team by how comfortable we feel in each other's company at friday night drinks what if we changed the question to say, no, no, the value of our team and our, you know, diversity is going to be measured by, in fact, how much, how many points of difference there actually are here and how fully aware we are of those and how much we own them rather than making them the thing we try to sweep under the carpet. Mm. So that's, you know, in part, I love the idea that teams should spend time kind of creating almost a little operating manual of me and sharing that Mm. with each other so there's a couple of organizations i've worked with that have done this and i think it's just gold where people you know shane when i start working in this team one of the things i'm going to read is shane's operating manual for shane then we'll be challenged to create my own and it's not that i just sit there with a blank sheet of paper we've got a process for coming up with that and that might involve some personality profiling and some debriefing but it will also ask me some questions around you know what does it look like to get the most out of me? What will trigger me off to get frustrated and um, impatient with you? What are the sorts of jobs that I um, put off and procrastinate on? And what are the sorts of emails I never get around to reading? Because the more I understand that, then the more likely I am to to have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of difference that exists between us. Mm. So what we're doing here is saying, how do we make difference the norm here and then have a way, a shared language here of talking about those differences and navigating them. I think that's that's the first question. And then the second question I'd ask, which comes straight to mind, is what systems, I'm always wary of the word systems because it can sound a bit too clinical, but what structures, what scaffolding can we put in place for ourselves to make it really easy to understand what each other has to offer and where we can help one another best contribute to each other's problems Um, so rather than simply relying on the serendipitous kind of conversation over a coffee which are great by the way (laughs) but do we have some kind of system in place where each person in the team has identified the two biggest things the two biggest problems they're wrestling with at the moment and that is made visible to the whole team even better to the whole business so that then we have a structured way of saying that's something I reckon I can help you with or that's something I I reckon I can contribute to. So styles and systems are the two two big questions I'd ask. I love those. And helpful to reflect on if you're in that space right now going like I I want that kind of a team that I feel like where it's not just over collaboration. I want to feel like we're having genuine co-creative, creative environments where we can kind of draw out the best of one another. I know um, I've done some work with Gallup and again, it's just one of the tools that, you know, people use, but one of the phrases that they use is differences are advantages. And I, I've always just kind of stuck by that, that, which is our, the yeah. best advantage that we can bring to our team is the difference. And so, and, and what I kind of add to that conversation is 
what we really think we want is familiarity, which is familiarity might make us comfortable, but difference makes us better. And uh, again, like we're looking for these environments to kind of go, how can I get better in this? Those two questions you asked, if a person was to leave and reflect on, which is number one, how do I better understand the individual differences of my team? And how can I appreciate them and leverage them rather than making them a, a source of conflict. And the mm. second one, which is around, do we have the systems that actually support or the structures that actually support for that and allow for that? I mean, a super helpful. And I'm, and I'm going back to the third question you asked earlier, which is um, uh, as a team, uh, what could we not accomplish with, or what could, what could we um, not have accomplished if we weren't all collectively in this room together? Those three questions, I think if you could just reflect on those, that would be transformational for businesses, right? Yeah. And there's a word that sits at the core of it, which probably haven't used enough here, which is value. Because if the differences conversation could be heard very easily as, oh, that's because it's that's because it's trendy or it's nice, you know, it's kind of progressive to think about mm. differences. So, well, hang on. What if we framed this as because by leveraging those differences, by somehow discovering the that what looks like friction between them actually becomes the kind of friction that creates value. Mm. Means that we come up with perspectives and ideas that we actually couldn't have done before. As long as we avoid those differences because they seem awkward or uncomfortable, we'll never get there. We will never mm. get there. And I think that's that's the same piece, which then means the structures and the systems have to be ways of harnessing and capturing that value. And then that first question, which is what are the problems we actually can only solve, means what's the highest order stuff, the, va- the real value stuff, as opposed to the point of order stuff we might currently structure our meetings around, waste of time. Uh, no wonder we're all desperate to get back to our desk so I can at least finish work before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> I, I think if people who are listening to this podcast sat down with a blank piece of paper and on the piece of paper put those three questions on the outside and put value right in the center of it and they said, what I really want is value, if they could just start by asking those three questions, it would be extraordinarily helpful for them. Um, and obviously, one of the things you touched on quite a lot, and as kind of bring this podcast in, into close, you you talked on there's a mindset part of this, which the questions will help you reflect on that. And there's a skill set part of it, which is there's actual some actually some skills that your team can learn to help work together in a more effective way. And that's why where you do such great work with organizations around that. So if a person's listening to this, their their mindset, they're they're learning about this, going, we need more of this. What's the best way for them to connect with you to bring you into the conversation to help build some of the skill set and the mindset piece around this? Oh, they could just jump over to my website, which is simondowling.com.au and have a squiz there and get in contact that way. Um, or they can just flick me straight over an email. Always love to hear from people. So I just put it out there. It's it's simon at simondowling.com.au. And they should absolutely get hold of your books as well. You've got a couple of great books, Work With Me and Get Heard, Get Results as well, uh, which a couple of That's books right. that you, people can pick up in a local bookstore. Yep, absolutely. And that'll give them a good flavor. And in fact, you know, those those books are in fact really just about saying when I wrote them it was very much to say let's get to the core of what the skill that is required in order to be nav- able to navigate these conversations is and it really comes from that place of saying that messiness of conversation is where the value will happen so now let's understand what that's going to look like from a both a skills and a mindset point of view so yeah a really great place to start and um you know if people want to sort of see me wax lyrically about this stuff uh i've got a youtube channel as well which is where they can you know watch the Amazing. whole playlist 
<laughs> I'll put I'll put all of the links to your book, to your website, to the YouTube channel in the show notes for the podcast. And, and oh, would absolutely encourage you. people to, to reach out and connect with you because um, I, I know that when we talk about the value, like it's it's obviously a word value, but the value it brings to a business when you have what you describe teams that hum, that that collaborative environment. I think that's we we want it, but I think potentially we're maybe not going about it the best way that we possibly could. Agreed. This has been so much fun, Shane. Thank you for having me on this call and for asking such brilliant questions. Like I love that question around what are the top two or three questions we would be asking as coaches that would yield people to the right place because it's really easy to have these conversations knowing what the work is, but how do you actually you know, identify the doorway into that for people? And, of course, questions is the best way to do that, um, whether we're internal or doing work like you and I do. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining on the podcast. It's been a privilege. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.